and a little child shall lead them. Thank you to our children. Amy and I are enjoying this fall, continuing to divide our sermon time into two different topics. Um, I have enjoyed looking at something more tangential to the text, something related to the text, but a way to try to deepen our understanding. And then Amy focuses on uh, the, the text itself and preaches a homily. So I've tried to pick something small that might help us to deepen our understanding. And so my small subject for today is God. God in three pages. Here we go. Karen Armstrong begins her encyclopedic volume, The Case for God, with these words. We are talking far too much about God these days, and what we say is often trite, simplistic. We think the concept of God should be easy and that religion ought to be readily accessible to everybody. That book was really hard, sometimes readers have told me with a scorn. Well, of course it was, I want to reply. It was about God. We've made God too easy. We talk too much. We know too much, or we think we do. We act as if when we say God, everybody knows what we mean because everybody has the same definition because there is a definition, a definition of God, right? A parent will sometimes say to Amy or me, I need some help. Little Susie started asking about God, and I don't know what to tell her. It's like this make-or-break moment in the child's life. If the parent doesn't give the right answer, the child's whole life is going to be screwed up. Well, parents and all the rest of you, let me invite you to practice these words. Listen carefully. I don't know. What do you think? Could you say it with me? I don't know. What do you think? What if Instead of giving definitive answers, we opened a child's imagination to the endless possibilities of God. Where does God live? I don't know. What do you think? Who created God? I don't know. What do you think? Was Jesus really God? I don't know. What do you think? And what if we said that no matter what we think, and it is okay, parents and the rest of you, to say, well, here's what I think. That's okay. But what if we said no matter how any of us images God, that God is even more than any of that? A lot of what's wrong with our world has to do with fundamental religion. No, not religion in itself, just bad religion. Religion of up and down, right and wrong, good and bad, cut and dry, the insiders and the outsiders, good and bad with no shades of gray. Most of what's dividing this country today can be traced to that kind of religion. Think about our issues. Most of it can be traced to that kind of religion. Beliefs based on my way or the highway, which is usually based on my reading of my Bible, and at the center of that kind of religion is my God, a particular kind of God, not a God of infinite possibilities, not the God of, I don't know, what do you think, but my own God, 
A God who has been cleanly and neatly defined and boxed in, framed by a particular set of values that almost always turn out to be secular values. Partisan commitments, sectarian understandings projected onto God as a means of justifying my bias. Who is God? What is God? Where is God? I don't know. What do you think? Now, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible does not give a fixed picture of God. A cut and dry, right or wrong, no shades of gray God. The Bible is a gorgeous picture book filled with stimulating images and stories. If we could resist the urge to compress those images into one idolatrous image, resist the temptation of our finite brains to concretize all of these images into one conceivable, containable, controllable God, those pictures might lead us into a healthy relationship, an ongoing conversation with the divine that is freeing and liberating and expanding. Who is God? What is God? Where is God? I don't know. But the Bible gives us a host of wonderful images. I have printed all of these, and they're on a copy on the little marble table in the vestibule going out. If you'd like to see them, let me just reference a few of these wonderful images of Scripture. In some of its images, the Bible pictures God in masculine form. God is a vineyard owner, a builder, a warrior. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, He has thrown into the sea. God is a king, a father, a judge. Isaiah says, your maker is your husband. But the Bible also gives us amazing feminine images of God. The psalmist compares God to a mother. And the prophet Isaiah says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. That prophet also pictures God as giving birth and as a nursing mother, and the prophet Hosea describes God as a mother bear. Deuteronomy pictures her as giving birth and as an eagle, as an eagle nesting over her young. Jesus, lamenting over Jerusalem, likens his own love to a protective mother. How often I have desired to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Along with that beautiful image, Jesus says God is like an old woman searching for one lost coin. The commentaries differ on whether Hosea 11 is a picture of a tender father or a nursing mother, but this may be the most passionate depiction of God's love in all the Bible. When Israel was a child, I loved him. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in arms. I was, like, I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I've always thought of that text as a, a reference to, the, to a feminine image of God. I've got this wonderful picture of Amy with our younger son, Bennett, the two of them cheek to cheek, and I always think of that picture when I see this. But maybe that's my own bias, that the tender is, belongs to the female. 
Maybe this is a picture of a tender father teaching his son to walk, his child to walk. I hope you paid attention to our opening hymn, Bring Many Names of God. And when we talked about mothering God, it was a strong mothering God. And when we sang about God the Father, it was a tender fathering God. How are our biases of God reflected in our words and our understandings? Beyond all these human images, there are inanimate references to God in the Scripture. God as consuming fire and light and rock. God is wind and breath. Speaking to that Samaritan woman at the well, if you remember the Samaritans from last week, Jesus teaches us, most importantly, God is spirit. Not a spirit, not the spirit. God is spirit. So let us worship in spirit and truth, he says. Now, most of our images of God turn out to be anthropocentric, the scholars tell us. That is, human-centered. Genesis says God created human beings in the divine image, but through our language, we inevitably reverse the process, creating God in our image. And there's no real getting around this, like asking a fish, how's the water? And the fish says, what water? You know, for human beings, humanly conceived images are all we have, all we can possibly manage So that image of God as Father is fine, as long as we remember that that's not at all what God really is. Warrior, nursing mother, fire, those might help in some ways, but God is not those either. Even our verbs that we use, God wants, God cares, God acts, well, yes and no. No human action. Even God loves. God loves. None of our words, uh, which are all wrapped in the limitation of human language, can do justice to the eternity of God. In fact, Karen Armstrong says, some of the world's best theological minds have always insisted that God does not even exist Because existence itself is a construct of a material world, a concept far too small for God. Now, what I'm suggesting to you today is that we need all of the images. All of the images of the Scripture, all of the images we can provide that we can dream up, we need all of the images, a tapestry of pictures And we need enough humility to know that no image, even the very best of our concepts, no image is adequate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once spoke of the God beyond God. God is beyond any of our concepts of God. And St. Augustine said, if you have understood it, it is not God. So all the images are appropriate giving us something to hold on to, and all are inappropriate, for even in their totality they pale in the light of the mystery, the immensity of God. So let me commend you today to the theology of the late Dr. Frank Tupper, who affirmed, I believe in God because I believe in Jesus, and not the other way around. Jesus 
the words, the actions, the message, the example of Jesus point us to God. Alongside our very best imagination, Jesus will be enough. May it be so. And the moral of the story is, nag, 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 pester, cajole, plead, persist long enough and you might get what you want. And the moral of the story is, beg long enough and even God gets tired of hearing the complaints and our incessant pleading finally gets God enough that just to get uh, just to get us to be quiet god will give you the desires of your heart and the moral of the story is more often than not persistence pays off now that last one might actually be true but it's not the moral of the story we attended russ's 40th high school reunion last night and while i'm a graduate of the same institution, I didn't know a lot of the people there because, let's face it, I was a mere underclassman among these old folks. <laughs> but it did get us to reminisce on the drive home about our high school sweetheart days. And in light of today's parable, I couldn't help but think of what my father used to call me. He used to say that my name should have been Amy Can I Go Jacks because I always wanted to go somewhere with somebody, usually Russ. But if there was something happening, I did not want to miss it. I had FOMO, fear of missing out, long before it was a cool acronym. I knew all the tricks of how to wear my father down. He was inclined always to say no, though he rarely said it out loud because he didn't like disappointing me. And I think he thought that enough, well, we'll see, and I would tire of asking. He underestimated me. And more often than not, my dad would give in and let me go. Now, it's easy to skim the surface of a parable of Jesus and miss the depth of layers provided to dig deeper. I don't have time to do a full character development of all the players involved in this parable. There's the persistent widow, there's the unrighteous judge, there's God, the righteous judge, there's the audience who originally heard this parable, there's the author of Luke's gospel. He's the only one to tell this parable. Why is that? And why would Luke's audience need to be the one to hear this? I don't have time for all that. So I want to consider another aspect of the text. On the surface, it seems to be about prayer and the power of persistent prayer. And that's why I picked a couple of the hymns today that deal with prayer. But the real thrust of the text is justice. Every day, that widow made her way to that judge. Every day, that widow alone, neglected, poor, shunned, desperate, despairing, discarded, belittled, hungry, tired, abandoned, isolated, deserted, outcast, and destitute. 
every single day she made her case before that judge. Grant me justice against my opponent. A simple message as she stood up for herself when no one else would stand up for her, acting as her own advocate when no one would speak for her, taking matters into her own hands when no one else would help a sister out. Good on her for her persistent pleading and begging and nagging for justice for herself. So can you even imagine what might happen in this world if those of us with clout and power and privilege and authority and influence persistently pleaded and begged and nagged for justice today just like that woman did it for herself? We could, we would wear down all the unrighteous judges who hold power and authority over the most alone, poor, neglected, shunned, desperate, despairing, discarded, belittled, hungry, tired, abandoned, isolated, deserted, outcast, destitutes of our day. If there is that kind of pleading for justice, you can be assured there is great suffering. For it is suffering that calls for justice. Justice is a fair and livable wage for a hard day's work. Justice is quality education for our most at-risk children. Justice is accessible health care for everyone. Just, justice is treating everyone, no matter the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, or their gender identification, as a beloved child of God that deserves every dignity and every respect that every beloved child of God deserves. Don't quote to me about the outliers that game a system or the lazy good-for-nothings. I don't want to hear about them. We're smart enough to know that there is great suffering among the poor, among the children who cannot read, among the sick who have no access to health care. And there is suffering among all of those who live outside our cultural norms. Suffering calls for justice. The moral of the story is, be the persistent widow who is daily showing up to all the unrighteous judges pleading grant justice. Here's what I believe about prayer. I can't for sure tell you what it does for God. Though I trust that my fervent prayers somehow align with all the ways that God is at work in the world for good, and my prayers add energy to that process. But I can for sure tell you that it is highly likely that if you bother to pray about something, you are more likely to be attuned to the ways God is calling you to be a part of the answering of those persistent prayers. So be persistent in prayer and specific 
about the suffering in the world, in your own world, and in the suffering of others, trusting as Anne Lamott ends her words on prayer, in prayer I see the suffering bathed in light. I'm going to practice more of that kind of praying myself, seeing the suffering bathed in light, and maybe then, with that kind of illumination, I will be helped to see what I am called to do to be the answer to someone's prayer. It's the irreverent and prophetic preacher Nadia Boltz Weber who explains it so well that though it is printed in your order of worship, it must be heard out loud and let it soak in. None of us is alone. We are connected by prayer to each other and to God. It hurts sometimes, but the more you see suffering and injustice around you, the more you pray, and the more you pray, the more connected you are to that suffering, and the more connected you are to that suffering, the more connected you are to the crucified and risen Christ. For these silken threads of prayer which connect us to God and to one another and even to our enemies or how God is stitching our broken humanity back together. So church, pray without ceasing and do not lose heart, for God has some stuff to do. Pray always. Don't lose heart. In today's text, God is the righteous judge who grants justice without delay to those who cry out. So if there is a delay in justice, that's on us for not being a part of answering persistent prayers. May all of the suffering of this world be bathed in the light of our own nagging, pleading, cajoling, persistent prayers for justice. And may all of those prayers and all of that light call us to action on behalf of all of those who are most alone, poor, neglected, shunned, desperate, despairing, discarded, belittled, hungry, tired, abandoned, isolated, deserted, outcast, destitutes of our day. May it be so. Amen.